I was going to say, the adults should listen and follow along, and if I made any mistakes, that you should correct me. Because I may have missed something or said something that wasn't right. But this chapter of Acts is an amazing story of the deliverance that God granted to Peter. The amazing answer to prayer that God gave to the church. And it's interesting because I, I hadn't looked at the Sunday school lesson as I was studying for this, but our Sunday school lesson mentioned suffering and prayer. And that is actually two of the key points that I, I pulled out of this passage as I looked over meditated on what happened here, this account. What are the things that we can learn, that we can draw from this? And the one is that there will be suffering. Uh, I debated on how to, how to outline, lay this, lay my thoughts out. And I kind of have two different lines of thought, but one would be looking at kind of the two, the two key elements of people here, you had Herod and the Jews, but Herod especially, and you had the church. And we're going to see a, a contrast here. Herod was a persecutor. I didn't tell the last part of the story. I, I was going to there, and, and I, I did not. But for those, the children can listen here again. I'll tell it real quickly. Herod, right after this, he could not find Peter, and he had the guards examined and said, what happened? Why did you all let him get away? And they said, well, we didn't. He just left. And he said, well, you were supposed to keep him. And he had those guards killed, put to death. And then he went somewhere else, and he made a great speech, and the people that heard him said, it's a God. Herod's a God. And God, the Lord God, struck him down by an angel, and the worms ate him and he died. He was a persecutor. He was praised by the people there and then he perished. The church, on the other hand, was persecuted. They prayed. And if you read verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. I would say they prevailed. So you had two contrasting elements here. Herod was a persecutor, he was praised, but he perished. The church was persecuted, they prayed and prevailed. And as I see this in lessons for us, the church will be persecuted. Christians will suffer. And I read passages in Peter's writings with a different perspective after reading this chapter. Peter suffered a lot in different times. He was in prison before this. And it could be that's why they put four quaternions of soldiers because back about was it chapter 5 that he was in prison and he got out and they knew this. But he suffered. 
But he writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or many trials and tests, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He spoke from experience. He knew what it was to be tried and to have tests, to have his faith tried. It says that Peter was sleeping. How many of you, on the night before you were scheduled to be put to death the next day, would be at rest sleeping? How many in our world? Peter was sleeping. And I see that as a a calm, steadfast faith. He speaks from experience that the trial of your faith, being much more precious of gold that perisheth, the faith is precious... The fire tries it and makes it pure. His faith was strengthened. In chapter 4, he talks again about not thinking it's strange because there's going to be a fiery trial which is to try you. And it's no strange thing. Verse 13, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. But on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And then down in chapter 4, verse 19. Wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Peter talks a lot in, in the book of 1 Peter about suffering, about trials. And they're to be expected. What are the trials? Are they all external? Are they all pressures of persecution? I think sometimes our faith can be tried in very quiet ways. We may be tempted to give up. We may become discouraged. And that is a trying of our faith, of our trust in the Lord. Romans chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 1 to 5. This passage was referenced in Sunday school. In our class it says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Tribulation. Testing, hard times, suffering. We grow in patience. And it says here, patience works experience. 
Another, well, most of the other translations I looked at use the word character there. They build character. They, they help define who we are and how we relate to the, to the trials that come. And as we are patient, it helps us become better people of God. Patience works experience or character. And that character produces a hope that gives us boldness and a confident faith. Suffering is to be expected. The trying of our faith is, as some would say, par for the course. It's, it's just going to be. James chapter 1 says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. I had to think also of the church there at Smyrna. One of the few that had a, a good report. But he says, I know thy works, thy tribulation, thy tribulation and thy poverty, but thou art rich. And then he encourages them to fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. The devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Do we chafe under suffering? Another thought along this line of suffering and the lack of suffering has been on my mind a bit the last number of, of days, week or so, and I actually mentioned it to several people as I, we came up a discussion. And I thought of it here. What was the sin of Sodom? I couldn't remember where it was. I knew what it said to some degree, but I, I finally found it. It's in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50. It says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Now, I don't know if you're following my train of thought at all, but pride, ease, and plenty. That's not suffering. And it created in them an attitude of independence and led them into all kinds of other abominations. I also had to think of the song number 18. I understand this song was written by a, a young lady that experienced a tremendous amount of suffering. I think she passed away at the age of 28. But I believe she was bedfast for a number of years before that. And a lot of pain and, and problems. 
You could do the math. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she lived longer than that. But she had experienced a lot of pain. And this song thanks God for the earth, for joy. But verses 3 and 4, I would like to sing. Because I think it puts things into perspective a little bit. I thank Thee more that all our joy is touched with Embrace them or do we shy away? If all our life was pleasure and ease, would we really long for the presence of God? There's more verses that speak of, of suffering in Peter, but there's also one that In 1 Peter 3, verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And it goes on to speak about suffering. But that's the second thing, as I see here, God hears the prayers of his people. And that is demonstrated very vividly in this passage in, in Acts 12. These people were committed to seeking the face of God. It was effectual prayer because it was fervent prayer. This was likely the middle of the night. There were a group of people together. They were interceding on the behalf of their beloved brother. God doesn't always answer our prayers how we like, perhaps. And maybe that's because we don't always pray as we should. But yet God does hear our prayers. In Matthew 18, 19 and 20, Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And in John 14, and again in John 16, Jesus says, Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, I will do it. I don't know how many of you remember Brother Richard Hurd's message on Wednesday evening the other week. His first point in the dangers of apostasy. Any of you remember what that was? 
a lack of closet prayer. Any of you remember hearing that term? He talked about shutting the door, getting away from the cares of life, focusing. And that comes from Luke 11. Actually, it's not that that's, that's earlier there in Matthew that, that that term, shutting the door, I believe, comes. But a need to find time with God. And there's closet prayer, and as we saw there in Acts and in Matthew 18, there's corporate prayer. Several gathered together. And I'm going to read a passage here in Luke chapter 11. You could turn there. Verses 5 to 13, that is a very encouraging passage as we think about prayer. And how many of those there praying had heard Jesus say those words? I don't know. But in Luke 11, verse 5, it says, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine is in his journey, is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you that though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And as I pondered the church and prayer, the commands to ask, the, the, the references to pleading with God, the devotional Brother Craig read this morning of that, that persistence that God wants us to have in prayer. If we desire God to work I believe it comes through prayer. In the little reading and, and listening to others who have read, looking at history and, and church history and following spiritual awakenings and revivals, most times they start with a few people that were committed to pray, to seek the face of God, and to open their hearts before God. And that is something that I think we need to take seriously. Most of us desire revival. I believe it was there the one evening that, that Brother Richard asked, who all wants to see revival? And almost everyone's hand went up. What are we willing to do to make that real in our own lives? And I think it's coming, going to our closet in prayer and also meeting together for fervent prayer. Another aspect of truth that I see here in this passage in Acts 12 is the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He works above and beyond 
what we can see and explain. In verse 11 of, of chapter 12, it says, When Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. He saw that this was God's hand thwarting the plans of men. And I believe that that was a, just a stirring in his heart. He was, he was strengthened in his faith. The sovereignty of God can be seen very clearly in the book of Daniel where we have Nebuchadnezzar's story, his, his, uh, his life account there at the end of his life, <clears throat> the fulfillment of the dream. And then in, in verse 34 of Daniel 4, says, And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and whose kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say, What doest thou? That was the, the proclamation of a king. There's another proclamation of a king a few chapters later in Daniel 6. Verse 26, King Darius, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever in his kingdom that that which shall never shall not be destroyed in his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth. He worketh signs and wonders in heaven and earth who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. These were men that had power over huge portions of the earth. They were called sovereign, right? Isn't that what they called kings? And yet their sovereignty was limited when God came in and overrode their, their sovereignty Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And to me, this brings a sense of, of, I guess our faith can be strengthened as we see the sovereignty of God at work. We know that, that in the times of suffering, that our prayers can be answered because God can move beyond what men can do or what we can see. God is sovereign. God is also a jealous God. It's actually a name that he gives himself in Exodus 34, whose name is Jealous. And part of that is, is where that is in context of having no other gods in Exodus 20 and in Exodus 34. It talks about having no other gods before God. He's a jealous God. And the happening here in Acts 12 at the end where Herod is making this oration and he takes upon himself or he does not push back against the idea that he is a God. And we see what God does there. Later in Acts 
Paul and Barnabas face a similar accusation. And the priests come out to worship them and to offer sacrifices instead of saying, oh, let's watch them do this. They tore their clothes and they said, no, we're not gods, we're men. It's interesting to see what happens here to Herod. And we we read this, we we see a, a pretty short picture and it's enough. But it's interesting, in Josephus, he writes about this event and in fairly much detail. And I'll, I'll read you what he wrote. It helps me to get a little better picture, maybe, of what happened. Josephus isn't the scripture, but it does have a lot of historical facts. It says, Clad in a garment woven completely of silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he, being Herod, entered the theater at daybreak. There, the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently on it. Straightway, his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for good, addressing him as a god. Much pomp and and beauty that he portrayed, setting himself up to be worshipped, God said no, that was enough. And he gave a very pointed and and direct counter to those words that he was a God, that Herod would have been a God. God was bringing that glory down. And finally we have here in verse 24, A very short verse that, again, on the one hand, we had the praise of men, the power of man being eaten by worms. And on the other hand, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Suffering came. Prayer was made. And the people of God grew in their faith, the word of God grew and multiplied. That, a a variation of that is several times in the book of Acts, the the word of God increased. And I guess that's my prayer and heart's desire for us, that we can embrace the, the trials, not all from outside, as I said, they can come from inside, the trying of our faith, our, our doubts and, and discouragements that come as we take our eyes off of Christ and that we would get our eyes and our faith back on the Lord Jesus and that we would be committed to fervent prayer personally and corporately and that we could be a part of this continuing multiplication of the word of God, the fruitfulness, the effectiveness of the power of the gospel. That is the witness that we are, we are seeing here in Acts going out. And it is growing and multiplying. And that growing and multiplying is here with us today. That's why you are here. And it is in our, in our shoes to take and continue to multiply it to those that we meet.